I hail from Northeast Georgia, which might as well be uh, Chattanooga. I'm up in Lawrenceville, but uh, I drove down to be here with you guys. Is everybody able to see me okay? Because I wore my camouflage today, so I didn't know if I just disappeared when I got... That was a joke. That was a, that was a, uh, it's nice to meet you, Joe. But uh, I'm really excited. I've known Scott and Tammy now. We, a number of years ago, helped establish a ministry called One Race that's still going to this day. And uh, it was an incredible honor to just be in the room with them as Scott and Tammy and my boss and leader, Billy Humphrey, over the last 17 years. Uh, they were the senior leaders of you know, various ministries and churches, and they said, what if, what if it, it feels like this is a time to bring people together across, uh, across culture, across race, across various lines, in our city denominational lines to come together and say that we're not going to allow racism and dead religion to reign in our city anymore. And I just remember that moment that felt so prophetically pregnant. And you have those moments where you say, God is going to do something, but you look around and all you have is fishes and loaves, you know? None of us were particularly large ministries. None of us had particularly, uh, none of us had, you know, millions of dollars sitting around to, to fund a citywide ministry. Uh, but God gave us favor and open doors and introduced us to the right people at the right time. And, yeah. and so with Scott and Tammy, I honored as they are covenant brother and sister in the Lord. And that makes us a covenant house for me. Yeah. Meaning when you've done things with people in ministry and in, in the kingdom, it's like you build bonds and relationships uh, that, that at times even feel stronger than blood, you know, because they're of the spirit. And so we went to the top of Stone Mountain together, and we did that event there where I don't know if y'all, who, who is there at Stone Mountain in 2018? Anybody here? A few of y'all. So we went to the historic stronghold of racism over our city. First place a cross was ever publicly burned by the Ku Klux Klan. We gathered 500 churches and leaders uh, from across our city, and we reversed the curse. And, and where an Episcopal Methodist minister had raised a cross and burned it for the first time. We erected a cross in crimson and white and said the blood of Jesus. We plead the blood of Jesus over the stronghold of racism and dead religion. And we made a commitment called the Atlanta Covenant, you can look it up, to say that we will not abide by racism in any of our ministries, uh, prejudice, and, and we said no to that. You know, And I, I believe that we can, as the church, have the power to loose and bind in the heavenlies. And I believe we loose the kingdom of God that day and the unity that can come from the kingdom of God, and we bound a spirit of racism. And we've just seen God continue to move in our city since then in very unique, special ways. And then, uh, when was it, Gene? Was it 2019? During, in the midst of, Gene's a special friend as well. He's a covenant brother as well, because we had quite an adventure together. But during the period in the wake of Ahmad Arbery's shooting, as well as George Floyd's, shooting and in that season of unrest even in our city where there were some things that were happening in downtown Atlanta some social unrest and it was the first time there was actually police involved shooting in our city and we had said when we started one race years before we said we want the church to be able to stand as a witness in times like this and here it was visiting our city so we went down and started to do prayer meetings at Centennial Park right there in the midst of all the unrest in the midst of the COVID pandemic and we felt God really leading us to, to do a prayer and protest event 
to, to stand up again and say that, that we disagree with racism and we disagree with these police-involved shootings. And, and so, what we, so what we did was, in a period of two weeks leading into June 19th, we put together an event at, at the center of, of, of our city, at the heart of our city, at Centennial Olympic Park, and we had over 12,000 people come. We actually marched to the state capitol, and Scott and Tammy were part of that. We had about 200,000 people who actually participate on live stream during that time, and it was just an unbelievable experience. And I remember standing there in front of a church that was across denominational lines, across racial lines, across multi-generational, standing in unity saying that the church wants to represent the kingdom of God and the kinds of things we see in our society, the division we see in our society, the racism that we see in our society, this is not the kingdom of God. And so we stood up that day and I believe made a meaningful, meaningful statement in our city and that's... We were right there on, on the platform. Scott and Tammy were there and a bunch of other friends from across our city. I remember the Lord spoke to me. And he said something to me. He said, I want you to build me a church in Atlanta that looks like this. And I'm still in the process of unpacking that prophetic word. But I knew it was a shift in the, the call of God upon my life. And what I knew the Lord meant was a church that was multi-ethnic, passionate, fervent in worship and prayer. And missional and on display to our city. And so I come from a church, like I said, Northeast Atlanta up in Lawrenceville that's done 24-7 worship and prayer for 17 years. We carry a heart for worship and prayer. But I know that I'm standing in a house today that carries a heart to be a witness to your city. My God. And so I know that, that even in that assignment, you know, God has not given all the pieces yet for what God is calling us to. Uh, but I know I stand in a place that I believe carries some of those pieces for our city. And, you know, uh, an apple seed, even in its seed form, still has the potential for an apple tree. And I think a lot of times we can despise the smallness of our beginnings, right, and say, you know, well, there's only a few of us. But I've seen what God can do with a seed that has it is a genuine seed of the kingdom of God. And I, I just believe I'm looking at something with massive potential. It's the first time I've visited y'all's church since you launched several years ago. I was there when it launched, but I haven't been back since. Uh, but, I, but I see something beautiful, authentic, something that's pure, something that's full of the presence of God, that has a vision for our city. And I think you guys are just at the beginning of what God's going to do with y'all. I really believe that. And so I want to take a moment to just even pray into y'all's destiny and purpose as a spiritual family. I know that you guys are at a moment that is in some ways a crossroads. Where, you know, you've had to change facilities a few different times. You guys have your leadership team in place, but the, the head of the house is, is taking some time to rest and recover. And we went through that season where our, our senior leader, Billy, at our church uh, took a nine-month sabbatical. And then uh, the other founding leader, Dustin, he's on his nine-month sabbatical now. I'm like, oh, when am I going to go my nine-month sabbatical? <laughs> but, uh, so, but that time to refresh and recharge... And I, you better believe that they're going to come back probably full of vision for what God's going to do. And there's going to be a place where this house has grown in many ways because of their absence. And so I just want to bless the work of God in that. So, Father, I thank you that uh, with all growth comes growing pains. And I pray, Father, that there would be a, an anointing on this house to grow into the calling to grow into the assignment. And I thank you that even just what you were just expressing in my heart, just in uh, that they, we don't fully see 
the potential that is here because so much of it still is in seed form and perhaps in some ways sprouting up out of the ground, but it's just in its in the days of small beginnings in many ways compared to where you will take it. But we bless and celebrate that all that is needed is present. And just in the words of scripture, that you'll bring the sunlight and you'll bring the growth and you'll bring the increase and it's a mystery, God, how you do that. But we show up and we stand in the light of your presence. We show up and we ask, Lord, let everything that is present here grow up into its fullness. Let every work that you've prepared in advance for them to walk in be fulfilled. And I pray today that this word that you've given, I believe it's a word from your heart for both this house and our city. I pray, Lord, let us hear what the Spirit would say to us today. Let there be no internal obstructions. Let there be no external distractions. We open our hearts to one another as a, a fellowship of believers. And we say, Holy Spirit, come and be the instructor and the teacher. Come and give us wisdom and revelation. Come and give us insight for application. Come and speak to us today, God. We're here to hear from you. We're not here to hear from Hazen or any human. Uh, though you use us, Lord, in one another's lives as instruments of righteousness, God, we know that all of our righteousness, all of our goodness, all our grace and our power, it comes from you. I thank you for the anointing that is even here today. We say it is of you, from you, and for you. All that we have, Lord, our finances, our time, our energy, and our reputation, it is from you and for you, Lord. And so we just, we pause even in this moment. We say thank you, God. Thank you for the seed falling on good soil. Thank you, God, for a harvest a hundredfold in people's lives. Thank you, God, you supply all we need. We seek your kingdom first in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible... And you'd like to follow along, or if you have a digital Bible, or you want to pretend like you're reading your Bible and instead text your friends, feel free to go ahead and do that. Just open the First Chronicles 13. You know, uh, and I have my son here, and so he's going to draw a little attention to himself from time to time, but then pretend like he doesn't want it. But he is there, he's five years old, and he said he wanted to come with me today, so I said, come on. So he's my ministry associate today. He said, uh, he might just be here for the after church lunch, though. He said, Daddy, I want to go get steak, steak, steak. So we're going to go get some, we're going to get some steak after this. All right. All right, good. So First Chronicles 13 and 13 and 15 are the two passages we're going to look at today. And in my Bible, a little heading for the First Chronicles 13 is peril in transporting the ark. And this is the story of where David finally comes into his prophetic destiny as king over Israel. And, and he makes a decision to take the ark, which in some ways had been forgotten, and to bring it to the center of his kingdom. And I'll talk in a moment about what the ark represents. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the revelation from the scripture and hopefully some practical application. I do want to highlight there are a couple ways in which I think you can apply this scripture. You can apply this scripture to your church. You can apply this scripture to your spheres of leadership, and you can apply this scripture to your home. And I think there are principles and applications from each. And so there's a contrasting story, basically, in 1 Chronicles 13. David fails to bring up the ark. In 1 Chronicles 15, he succeeds. 
and I've been reading and studying this passage, and it, it just really captured my imagination. And we're going to read the whole chapters today, and I'm just going to break them down for you guys. Does that sound all right? We're going to read the Word of God together, and I'm just going to draw out some principles for us. But in contrasting his success and his failure, I said, I think there are wisdom principles here for us to learn from on why he failed to steward God's presence rightly in the beginning, and then what he learned in order to finally successfully put the presence of God at the center of his kingdom. And when the presence of God was at the center of Israel as the kingdom, uh, the ark representing God's presence, the whole land prospered. But when the, but when the, and the ark was still in the land, but it wasn't at the center. And when there's a disjoining in your life where the presence of God is more like a side dish rather than the main dish, you're not going to experience the fullness of God's blessing. A lifestyle of 85% obedience and 15% compromise even though even though it's majority obedience that 15% compromise is a poison pill it's a poison pill that will allow you to never fully experience the satisfaction and joy that comes from wholehearted obedience to God so if you want to, I always like to take my message and make them as simple as possible. So if you're taking notes or you want the, the distilled version here's the here's the story in six words okay this is why David failed at first. You ready for it? And then I'm going to tell you why he succeeded at last. He failed at first because he sought to bring up the ark through convenience, ease, and pride. I could do the altar call right now. <laughs> he failed because of his pursuit of convenience, ease, and pride. Mm. And when he succeeded, he succeeded because of consecration, sacrifice, and humiliating dependence on God. He actually says in there, he says, I will humiliate myself before God. Because one thing that David understood that Saul did not is David understood he was not ultimately the king of Israel. So... <laughs> she said, can you repeat that? The six words? What do you want me to repeat? You're sitting up front, so you get whatever you want. You're probably going to get spit on sometime in this message, so just forgive me in advance. <laughs> Why he succeeded. Consecration, sacrifice, and humiliating dependence. And I am going to repeat that over and over again. You're going to be walking out of here going, consecration, sacrifice, humiliating dependence. Because... because those kingdom thoughts, they can be a guide star to us. Amen. I mean, really, when we say consecration, sacrifice, and humiliating dependence, we're really talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, Amen. right? The cross of Jesus Christ was about consecration and obedience to the will of the Father. Ultimately, Jesus becoming the ultimate sacrifice and him living in humiliating dependence. And we know that when Jesus consecrated himself, sacrificed himself, and brought us into humiliating dependence, he brought the presence of God to all of us. He made all of us, gave all of us the opportunity for resurrection life in our spirits and become a dwelling God, dwelling place for God in the spirit. So really, you could think about it this way. What David had to learn to bring the ark up into the, into the center of the nation, Jesus learned the same lessons in order to bring the presence of God to all humanity so that his glory could dwell in our tents. It's a little heavy ready. Someone needs some deliverance over here. What's going on? 
He's encouraging me, but that's exactly right. All right, good. So First Chronicles 13, I'm just going to read this chapter to us and I'll break it down, all right? But I love to just read the Bible without a lot of explanation because you may get stuff from the reading of the word that I don't have to give you today. Or the Holy Spirit might just breathe on something for you. So take note how God might speak to you. First Chronicles 13, then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send word everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in the land of Israel, to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands that they meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us since we did not seek it in the days of Saul. That's a pretty good start, David. You're doing all right. Then all the assembly said they would do so, for this was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together from Shehor to Egypt to the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bela, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God and the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim where his name is called. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs, with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. So they're having a great time. Then the Lord came. Uh, when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly overturned it. But the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. So he struck him because he had put out his hand towards the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah, as it is to this day, which means God broke out against Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how could I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark of, with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom and all that he had. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we'll take a moment. Let's break this down because in this we see where David started out all right, but then things went terribly wrong. And I don't know about you. I don't know about last time that y'all had somebody die in church, but they're basically having a church service, and then somebody does something so dishonoring to God that God struck them dead right there in the middle of the service. And so in this particular, hopefully nothing goes wrong like that today or anytime soon. So what we see in this story is that David starts out really well from a very good position uh, before the Lord. But by the, end of, but by the end of the story, things have gone horribly wrong. And what started out with the best of its intentions ends up in a place of uh, pretty sideways. Let's just put it that way. So here are the three affirmations, the things that we can see in David's leadership that were pretty good about him starting out. David wanted to seek the Lord. It says in verse 3, he says, let us bring back the ark of our God to us since we did not seek it in the days of Saul. David understood that he was called to do something different than what his predecessors had done. How many of you are in this room understanding that you're trying to do something better than what your mom and dad gave you? You're trying to raise uh, the number of people that I, I've met that they're not serving the Lord themselves, but they want to raise their children in church, Right. They want to give their kids better something than, than even what their parents gave them. And so they're making decisions 
to uh, they're getting decisions to making decisions to want to serve the Lord in some way, and that's good. That's good that we would want to do that. It's good to have those kinds of intentions, but even the best of intentions in the absence of follow through are no different than not having any intention at all. And so David starts out with a good intention in his heart, but the question is, is he willing to pay the price to follow through? But he starts out in a good place. Let us bring back the ark of God. And I wonder, why did they not seek it in the days of Saul? It was because an arrogant man had occupied the throne. And David, at his core, was a humble man. He truly did want God at the center. But the question is, was he willing to do it God's way and not his way? So David had a vision. It was a good vision to seek the Lord and to put the Lord at the center of the kingdom. And he united Israel around that vision. He consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds. And it says, with every leader. So David not only understood where he wanted to go, but he got everybody on board with his vision. And whether you're the leader of your family or whether you're the leader of an educational institution or a business or a church or a ministry, you understand the value of when the vision that is in your heart gets in the heart of your people and you can all begin to move in the same direction. It's a, an essential leadership principle so easily overlooked here. David gets the vision to seek the Lord in the hearts of all the people in all the land. He convenes the leaders and he gives them a vision and he assembles them together, it says in verse 5. And lastly, David didn't just want to seek the Lord and give a vision to everyone to seek the Lord, but he wanted God to be first. He wanted to actually put him in the center of the new capital of the kingdom. And he wanted to actually bring the ark up out of the byward places that it had gone to, and he wanted to put it in the center. And can I tell you, that can, that can seem so easily missed. But when we put God as second place in any place in our lives, in our business, or in our ministry, that is in dishonor to the first and second commandment, which says, have no other gods before me and do not worship any idols. If God is second in your life to money, if God is second in your life to your career, if God is even second to you in your life to your own children, then you have misplaced priorities. And David understood something that Saul did not. Which is not only do we need to seek God, but we need to seek God in order to make him number one. Yeah, we need to make him first. And here's what's so troubling about this story. Is with that excellent start and with those good foundational understandings, David still got sideways. <laughs> David, the man after God's own heart, he still got sideways. Now what's unique about David is that David is quick to correct. He responds to the discipline of the Lord. We'll see how he does that. But it is, it is remarkable to me that David could have so many things right and it could go so horribly wrong. But as I was reading the story, I go, it is remarkable. And how many of you know, many of you guys got a good start out to your Christian journey. But what began in the spirit, oh goodness, you're trying to finish it in the flesh. <laughs> and that's what David did. He started with the right spirit. But then he let he reached out with the arm of his flesh. And and my admonition was whether it's a church institution or whether you're trying to raise your family is the thing that that those be, those early beginnings where you stayed in that place of brokenness and dependence upon God. You need to remain in that place and dependence and brokenness before God. 
Because when we start to get full of ourselves, when we start to assert our own way, when we start to say, I don't know about that, God, because that might defame my reputation, that's when you're going to have problems. That's when you just start leaning into 85% obedience and saying, it'll be good enough. And you know what? The sad thing is, it might be good enough. It might be good enough for you to make it along in your life. And there's terrifying scriptures in Corinthians that says that there's some that are going to pass into eternity, but you're not even going to have the clothes on your back. <laughs> you're going to carry no reward forward because you lived a compromised life that was enough for you to be saved, but your life was wasted in the purpose of God. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that to put fear in us. To put any fear in us because the grace of God will sustain us. But there is a wisdom to recognizing that there is a cost to disobedience. There is an eternal cost to disobedience. Every time you click on that thing, you shouldn't be clicking on. Every time you know the right thing to do, but you say it's too costly. Every time you do a little bit too much of that thing you shouldn't do or neglect to do the thing you know you should be doing. There's a cost to that disobedience. There's a real cost. And I'm preaching to myself. I'm going, Lord, just give me grace to be more wholehearted. And what's so beautiful is God is so faithful to be gracious to us as we humble ourselves. As we humble ourselves and say, you know what? The thing that I need to change in my life, I don't have any power to change. I don't have any power to change it. But, but the change begins in the recognition. I can't keep going the way I've been going. And that is confession and repentance that brings the grace of God. And we'll see David did that in, in just a minute. Um, so do you want to know, you guys want to know how David, he, he got sideways. He got, he got going the wrong direction. He, he went left when he should have gone right. Here it is. Point number one. He put the ark on a new cart instead of on the shoulders of consecrated Levites. Since the days of Moses, there is only one way that you carry the ark of God. And that is you put it on the shoulders of Levites. And David knew this good and well. He even gathered all the Levites. But when it came time to lift the ark of God and put it on the shoulders of the consecrated Levites, they said, we've got a better idea. Let's get a cart and some cart drivers, and that's how we're going to do it. And do you know, the last time the ark was on a cart was when it was being sent from the land of the Philistines. See, because they had lost the ark of God, and the Philistines started having all these problems because they captured the ark and the idols in their temples, their heads started falling off and they started to get tumors and growths. And so they put the, they said, we are sending this thing back to Israel. And they put it on the cart and they sent it back. And it remained in Kiriath-Jerim throughout the days of Saul's reign. And so David, for some reason, though he knows only ever in the history of Israel has it ever been carried on the shoulders of consecrated Levites, he says, let's put it on a cart just like the world does. And I'm not talking about form. I think we should have a lot of variety in our worship expression. We should have a lot of different kinds of wine skins, but we should not change the wine. We don't, we don't change what the substance of the kingdom of God is. We don't change the foundational precepts of what God has commanded in order to conform to culture. We can... We can worship however, whatever expression, as long as we're worshiping God and not ourselves, <laughs> right? We can, we can have whatever kind of technology that allows people to connect with God as long as we're actually connecting them with the true God of the Bible, not of the God created in our own image. And so whether it's the issues of our sexuality, 
or issues surrounding our uh, identity, whatever those, whatever those issues, what materialism, whatever the idols of this day are, we don't change the gospel in order to worship those things. We don't change, we don't change the wine. We can change the wineskin. And you know, that's what religion is, is religion is preoccupation with the wineskin to the neglect of a wine. It's true. But when you know you're in a religious environment when people are way more concerned with the wineskin than they are whether there is any wine in that wineskin. Oh, I'm like, is there any wine in the wine? Well, we're talking about the wineskin. Your wineskin ain't got no wine! Like, come on. Arguing about the theology of the songs and there's no presence of God in your worship. Because you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping your... You're worshiping yourself in those songs. It was funny. I heard a story this week. Somebody came up to their preacher and said, I didn't like the worship. It wasn't connected with me. Preacher said, I'm glad it didn't connect you with you. We weren't worshiping you. <laughs> we, we've lost, I think, in many ways, our priestly identity within the church. The priestly identity is the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? It's about him. And if we're a priestly people, we're making our worship and our lives and our time. It's not about him. It's, it, it's a, I'm sorry. It's about him, not about whether we got fed or we liked the music or the temperature was the right temperature in the room or whether the sound was the right sound. People get worried about all kinds of silly things. But if you're preoccupied with the presence of God, I promise you, you're not going to care what the temperature is. In the and I know I'm preaching to the choir. Y'all don't care about that. I'm just telling us. Like, it is a, it's, I mean, it's a weird world out there right now. You know, where every, I'll just go, i just, when you have people leaving the church, leaving their church family over whether somebody wears a mask or doesn't wear a mask or, I'm not suggesting one way. I'm not going to tell you all my opinion on that. Okay, what I am going to tell you is that if we can't judge amongst ourselves concerning such things, there is an absence of the wisdom of God. In we need to be, there's probably valid conversations that can be had around those kinds of things, but what that, what that symptom exposed is that there is an absence of our ability to judge amongst ourselves. And to come to a place of unity, and you see churches fragmenting over things like that. Yeah. And we need to let the lessons of COVID-19 work deep humility in our hearts and help us recognize how far in many respects we are. Though God loves us, and he is kind, and he is for us, then we got some work to do. Yeah. All right, back to my point. A new cart up and set it upon the shoulders of the, of the Levites, and this to me represents convenience. David knew better, but he still did what was convenient instead of what was required. The ark had always been carried on the shoulders of consecrated Levites. But in verse 7, they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ohio drove the cart. Are we cart drivers or are we priests in this place? And I've been in ministry long enough, I'll speak to the ministry leaders here, that if you find yourself where all of a sudden you, you started out as a Levite, but now you're a cart driver, right? And perhaps you've taken a misstep in your journey. And you're just driving ministry. Keep those ox moving. And there's a lot of strength in an ox. A new cart and some ox, that's a lot more horsepower than on the shoulder of Levi's. Levi's is slow going. And you can get some horsepower out of the oxen and the new cart, right? That's not a bad presentation. It's just not God's prescribed method. 
and you're actually sacrificing. And again, I'm not talking about form. I'm not talking about playing a certain kind of music in church. What I'm talking about is we leave the values of the kingdom of God and sacrifice on our values for convenience, money, resource, popularity. And it's epidemic across the church. We can't preach the full counsel of the kingdom of God because people don't want to hear that. People will leave our church. Or if you preach a hard message on the realities of hell, everybody needs to know hell is real, right? That is a foundation. There's a real adversary. And we have, we have an absence of that truth widespread across the church right now. And we need a reformation that says that we are actually going to put the presence of God at the center and we're going to put it on priestly people. And priestly people are people that both worship God and instruct the people rightly concerning who God is because they know him. And that is entirely different than an ox with a car driver. So this led to something so unfortunate. If you had looked at what was happening around that cart and later what was happening around the consecrated Levites, they would have looked very similar. They had cymbals. They had guitars. They had drums. They had sick bass. It says David is dancing wildly before the, before the cart. The form, even in his disobedience of celebration, looked exactly the same. But in their celebration, initially, they neglected the sacrifice. They had celebration, but they were not sacrificing anything. It says later that they celebrated and they sacrificed seven oxen and seven bull. But in this first instance, they celebrate, but they neglect the sacrifice. Now, that'll, that'll, that'll preach right there. Right? How many people are showing up to church on Sunday morning, they're worshiping God, they're living like hell the rest of the week? Got a whole lot of celebration, not a lot of sacrifice. Not a lot of take up our cross daily and die daily in order to obey the ordinances of God. And I believe me, I love to worship. I loved our worship today. It was filled with the presence of God. But I'm smart enough to know the condition of the church right now. There are probably people in here right now that there's some place where you need to line your heart up. Because, you know, you've been looking at something, listening to something, saying something, angry about something that you shouldn't be. And you're coming in going, God, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you, accept that, accept that, and accept that. I live for you mostly alone. <laughs> Nobody sings that song, right? Nobody sings that song because it doesn't feel good to sing that song. We sing, our, we sing our aspirations, but are you applying yourself to live surrender towards God? Are you going, okay, let's get that thing that could, that could put opportunity, money, and resource in my pocket, and let's kill it as a sacrifice to God. Man, we, we taught a series called All In, and in that series, I have one of the most encouraging testimonies ever. There's a guy who's in the Gwinnett County uh, School District, and he was over the motor pool, and he was a supervisor over several different mechanics. In that, he'd had that job for two years, and he said, as we were going through this series about living all in for God, he said, I realized that since I took this promotion, I've had more stress, less time to serve the Lord, my heart hasn't been right with God. And he said, I went to my supervisor this past week, and I asked him to demote me so that I could serve God more wholeheartedly. He took a pay cut. He took a cut to his reputation. He took a backward step in his career because he said he wanted to live God more wholeheartedly. 
I cannot think of a more practical example of someone who said, you know what? And he did it in obedience to God. He was being led by the Lord. He didn't just do it haphazardly. He really prayerfully did that. But he said, it's more important for me to have margin in my life to serve the Lord than it is for me to have a bigger paycheck or a better reputation. So if you just want to get real practical, it's like, are you willing to take steps up to serve the Lord? Are you willing to take steps back to serve the Lord? Because everything isn't always up and to the right in life. We go glory to glory, right? That means things are always going to get better. How many of you know that you walked enough, long enough with God that sometimes things go into the grave before they get better? <laughs> sometimes the seed's got to die. <laughs> like, and your dream has to die. And, and the resurrection doesn't always come in the way you expect. The fruit of that decision may not be one day he gets a better job. The fruit of that decision may be that his kids in five years are serving the Lord. And he's going to have a regret about it, right? Because he made a wise choice. So he, David led in celebration but without sacrifice, and that's ease. That's ease. That's an unchallenging... That's a let's not say anything from our pulpits. Let's not say anything to our employees. Let's not say anything to our family members because we might they might not like us. Now, you know, honestly, it's the biggest hurdle. If you want to, the biggest hurdle in our culture is that you would share the offense of the gospel and someone would actually be offended. And we go, let's try and kind of soften the edges on it. And let's say, you know, Jesus loves you and I preach the gospel. And it's like, it's a little. You can tell them Jesus loves you, but that's a starting point. Right. He loves you so he died for you so you wouldn't have to die and go to hell. And that's all you deserved. But now he's qualified to justify you before a holy God so that His that holy God's wrath will not come upon your life. And you get to experience mercy. And you get to experience being a child of God. But it did not come without a price. That price was paid. It just wasn't paid by you. It was paid by Jesus for you. God so loved the world that he gave. If we just preach God so loved the world, we neglect the gave. Right? We're preaching an incomplete gospel. So we, have, we can have celebration, but we must also have sacrifice. And then, after all this, this is the part that's mind-blowing, but all of us, the sinfulness of our hearts can kind of relate a little bit, right? Like, God, why'd you try it? Why'd you have to kill Uzzo? He seemed like a good guy. He tried to steady. He tried to help you out, God, when your ark was about to fall off that cart. You know, you read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Like that seems kind of harsh, God. Like they just lied. You know, like you killed them. That's. He may have killed them. I don't know if they went to hell. So you know, we'll... I think Uzo probably died and then went up to heaven, and God was like. Shouldn't have touched the heart, bro. <laughs> you knew the rules. <laughs> Don't look at me. Like, shouldn't have touched the heart, man. So, but David gets angry. David gets offended when God didn't bless his humanly derived efforts. How many of you have ever said, God, I'm going to win it for you, do it for you, and God's like, you're making me sandwiches I didn't order? That's what Jesus said to Martha, you know, Mary's sitting at his feet, and she goes, she goes, my sister is not helping me. And Jesus goes, you're busy making sandwiches that I did not order, right? He goes, she's chosen the best part. It's not going to be taken from her. It's like a lot of us are like, well, you know, you start out your career or whatever, and then you become a Christian, and you're like, well, I just want to, I, I don't want to give up everything fully, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what I was doing for you, God. And he's like, that's not what I asked you to do. 
you know, and it might be, oh, I'm, a, I'm in ministry, and God's like, hey, I've called you to business. Or it's like, hey, I'm in business, and God's calling you to ministry. And you're like, I'm just going to keep on keeping on because this is what I want to do. And you're like, but God, why won't you bless me? And we get offended because we don't see the blessing of God when we're trying to do things in his service, but we're not doing what he's asked us to do. Doing it God's way was actually too costly and difficult. So David abandons the pursuit of God's presence at the center of his kingdom because it says too costly, it's too difficult, and God seems to even be imposing me. I don't understand. I give up. As I was writing those words, I was like, I know somebody in here has said that at some point. <laughs> like, I'm trying to serve you, God, but your blessing isn't on it. And sometimes that adversity comes because you are serving God's purpose and the enemy is opposing you. So it takes discernment to know the difference. But there's other times where we are actually sprinkling a little Jesus on a turd, right? And we're asking for that turd to become a cupcake. And sprinkle a little Jesus on something doesn't make a turd a cupcake. You follow me? Turd's not a bad word, is it? I let my little man say that word, so it's like, as long as he doesn't go, hey, pass that word, just, you know. And so, but I'm just being real with us that we take something that is, that is not actually of God, and we sprinkle a little God on it, and we expect it to all of a sudden manifest the blessing of God. And the root ain't right. Right? It says that if we abide in him, we bear much fruit. But if we are a, a, something that is separated from him, that thing's going to wither and die. So is your family rooted in him? Is your business rooted in him? Is your career rooted in him? Is it, a, is it about him, for him? That's, that's where we get the connection that brings fruitfulness. And do you know that it is easy for a branch to bear fruit when it's connected? And some of us are out there just trying, oh, just bear the fruit, God! And he's like, hey, there's a disconnect back over here. And that's why you're having trouble. You're not in the word. You're not in the place of my presence. You're not in prayer except Sunday morning, which sadly is better than most, right? But it's, that's... I can't stay righteous with only 20 minutes of God's presence every day. I'm not going to be able to, I'm barely going to be able to stay out of sin, much less bear fruit. And so we're offering God our pittance, and we're somehow expecting that to be sufficient for a life that is expressive of God's righteousness, his fruitfulness, his power, and his presence. And we've just done the math wrong. And we've spent too much time on our kids' athletics and on Netflix and on Facebook. Jesus. And honestly, I mean, if you take an honest look at your inventory and you go, you know, it, my prayer time versus my time on social media, right? And I just go, you go, I don't have time to spend time with God. I go, that's your time right there. I give it to you. Just recalibrate right there. Pivot on that point and go, you know what? I'm going to cut this back and I'm going to spend more time in God's presence. Even if I'm going to put a worship song and I'm going to raise my hands to Jesus for 15 minutes every day. It will change your life. But David got offended because God didn't bless his humanly derived efforts. And so, you want to hear how he did it right, though? I'm not going to leave you all there with David's mess. First Chronicles 15.1. Turn there with me. We'll read it, and I'll hit it real fast. Let me close with a moment of prayer. This is how we steward God's presence. David looks at three months of blessing at Obed-Edom's, and he goes, I'm jealous. I'm provoked. He goes, I've got to have God at the, pres at the center. I've got to have his presence at the center of my kingdom. I've got to have his blessing upon our nation. So David says, 
He got it real fast after Uzzah got taken out. No one is to carry the ark of God except the Levites. For the Lord chose them. I love how, see, this is the heart of David. It's, it's the same as Peter, where Peter's like, you shall not wash my feet. And then he's like, give me a whole bath, Lord. <laughs> David's like, put it on the cart before, dancing wildly. And then Uzzah dies, and he's like, well, we didn't do that right. And so David's like, no one will touch the ark <laughs> except the Levites. <laughs> the ark of the Lord, who serve him forever. That's the spirit, David. Some of us need to get that, though. We need to get the, the freedom of a shameless course correction. Right? He had a revelation, and then he, it led, led to a shameless course correction. Some of us want to spend a little bit of time in shame making our course correction, and that detour is unnecessary. Yeah. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can make a shameless course correction today and say, I've been going the wrong way. I've been spending my time the wrong way. I've been spending my money the wrong way. God, have mercy on me. Help me. And he doesn't need your shame. He just needs you to march the right direction as quickly as possible. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem and said, let's do it again <laughs> to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place. He's like, I know this went bad last time and somebody died, <laughs> but I've done some research. I've gone back to my roots. I went back and saw how Moses did it, and we're going to do it the same way. It's going to turn out better this time. We're done with the new cart. We're done with the new cart. David gathered together. I love, can I just commend that, you know, I came in here and was preparing and it's, okay, worship team tryouts and getting the scriptures up, getting everything excellent and right. You guys even had the little powdered donuts that my son loved. <laughs> Y'all doing things right. But you know what? 30 minutes before the service, everything else stops and we're just worshiping and we're in the presence of the Lord, right? We're ministering to the Lord for, because it's about him. And I believe this house really is, it's about him. And so David gathered together sons of Aaron, the Levites. And I just wanted, from verse 4 to verse 12, I'm not, well, I'll read it all just, just for emphasis. The sons of Kohath, Uriel, the chief, and his 120 relatives, the sons of Moriah, Asiah, the chief, 220 of his relatives, the son of Gershom, Joel, the chief, 130 of his relatives, sons of Elisphan, Shemaiah, Sons of Hebron, Eliel, the chief, 80 of his relatives. The sons of Uziel, Aminadab, the chief, 112 of his relatives. Then David called the priests Zadok and Abathar for the Levites and Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab. And he said to them, and I just want to take note, when you, when you carry it on a new card, it takes two people. When you carry the presence of God on the shoulders of Levites, it takes an entire family. There are like 500 people listed in that. And there's a beauty to that, that it's not dependent on, let's just say it's not dependent on Tammy and Scott when it's about the presence of God. Right, right. How many of you know that there are churches that they're built around a singular person driving a cart? Mm. But the way that we're meant to see it is a consecrated company of people as Levites coming together as the family and everybody carrying their portion. And he said to them, you are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your relatives, so you may bring up the ark of the Lord your God of, of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. David had prepared a place for the ark in expectation. 
He said he was going to do it right this time. And he said, because you did not carry it at first, so he had had a revelation. The Lord our God made an outburst against us since we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. This is a holy thing that they were doing. And we're not just going to put it on some cart and get some cart drivers. We're going to put it upon the shoulders of the Levites where it's always meant to be carried. And they're not going to be defiled by anything. They're going to consecrate themselves in the food that they eat. They're going to wash themselves, make their robes clean. They're going to come and do this because it's unto God. It's not about them. He says, they carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles on them, just as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the chief Levites and appointed them. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives as singers, musical instruments, verse 16, harps, lyres, cymbals, playing to raise sounds of joy. And we see again all the names from verse 17 to 24, all the different ones that had to take part in the worship of the Lord. And verse 25, so it was David with the elders of Israel and the captains of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. Because God was helping the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Now David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all Levites who are carrying the Ark and the singers. And they're singing with the singers and David wears an ephod of linen and all Israel brings up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting, the sound of the horn, the trumpet, the loud sounding cymbals with harps and lyres. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came, of the Lord God came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating. She despised him in her heart. So here's the three lessons real quick as we close our time. So the Ark can't be carried on a cart. It has to be carried on the shoulders of consecrated priests. There was both celebration and sacrifice when David did it right. And it's remarkable that when he sacrifices, it says the Lord God was with them, helping them make the sacrifice. See, it's more convenient to do it the other way. It's more full of ease to do it the other way. But you know what? God wasn't with them in their convenience and their ease. But when they were willing to sacrifice and lift it on their shoulders, it says three times right there, it was done with joy. And lastly, David learned dependence and humility. I would use the word humiliating dependence. Yeah, worship team, you guys can come. 2 Samuel 6.20, when David returned home to bless his household, this is the retelling in the chapters of 2 Samuel. And it tells with a little more detail the dialogue between David and Michael. And it says that he put on, instead of the robes of a king, he put on the ephod of a priest. So he humbled himself in his clothing before the Lord. He danced in a manner that was unbecoming and embarrassing. And Michael looks at him and says, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father 
clapback, or anyone from his house when he appointed me rulers over the Lord's people Israel. And he said, because of God's choice in me, I will celebrate before the Lord. And he goes, I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated. But we tend to think, well, that means I'm going to dance crazy. It's not about the crazy dancing. It was about his willingness to take such a low station that it was offensive to those who are of royal lineage. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. So he goes from being offended with the Lord not blessing the works of his hand to recognizing I've been proud and I've been asking God to bless my own efforts. And what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to strip down out of my royal robes and I'm going to stand before God as though he is God and I'm a man. And I'm going to be undignified and humiliated and I'm not going to be offended with God's leadership because God is God and I am not. And so why did David fail at first? Convenience, ease, and pride leading to offense. Why did he succeed at last? Consecration, sacrifice, and humiliating dependence upon God. And that's what I want to invite you guys just to stand with me. I'm going to invite us. Those that would just, well, I'm not going to invite you forward. Do you want to have something to share? Do you need to come? Okay. Just posture yourself before the presence of the Lord. He's here. He's been in this word. I know that the preaching of this word is not out of my own gifting. God had things to say to people today. I believe he said them. And now it is upon you to respond to him. So if you want to close your eyes, lift your hands, kneel, get on your face, whatever position best connects with you to receive grace in this moment. And so the invitation is to humble yourself before the Lord. And in any place where you've chosen, to put God's presence out of the center, to make it more about convenience and ease and our own pleasure rather than consecration, sacrifice, and humiliating dependence. There's an invitation to course correct today to shamelessly say, God, I'm realigning with you, the person of Jesus and the presence of God being number one in my life. And maybe he's number one in one area, but there's another area where you know he's taken the back seat. And you want to surrender. And you want to say, God, you know what? I've been offended, and today you gave me insight. I've been offended that my career isn't blessed how I thought it should be. But I recognize you've been calling me to a career change. And I've been looking at the Obed-Edoms in my house where the presence of God is at the center and the blessing of God is on them and my, and my lamp is dry of oil. And I've been wondering why. God's speaking to you today. It's, there's a, a, a realignment and a course correction that will again open up the windows of heaven upon your life. You've been entreating God for financial blessing, but you haven't been willing to give generously out of your lack. And you've been asking for God's blessing, but you haven't been willing to make that obedience. And that obedience might be a widow's mite. It might be such a small amount that it seems, is my $10 out of the $20 I made, <laughs> is that going to make a difference to you, God? And he says, it's, it's, it's about me having your heart. It's about me having your obedience that you would actually believe me to be as good as I say that I am. 
So God, we, we lean into that realignment right now. And I know you're speaking to people. I saw some tears in people's eyes. Lord, I pray for those where you've spoken to them during this message. You would invite them into grace, that there would be no shame or condemnation. That you would just welcome them, Lord, into a deeper, richer experience. You at the center and nothing else. Jesus at the center and nobody else. I don't, I don't want to be the center of my own life. Lord, I want you to be the center of my life. 